Right. Let's say, look at God's word together before we pray. Let's have a look at Psalm 130 together. I've not found a page number yet, but I will. I'm going to read this, then I'm going to pray. This is the psalm that Nathan's going to open up for us here this morning, Psalm 130. It's on page 624 in the Red Bibles, and I imagine it'll be on the screen behind me as well. It usually appears, Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word... I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thank you. Please take a seat and keep your red Bible out if you can, page 624, so that uh, you can see where I'm getting my ideas from this morning. It is great to be with you and it's great to be able to spend the entire day together, so thanks for having me. It's great to see new faces and friendly faces that I remember and that are familiar. That's great. So um, I've got... My wife did a psychology degree, and I've got a son who's doing A-level psychology, and they will tell you about the, if I pronounce this right, the Rorschach inkblot test. This is a psychological test where people far smarter than I show people pictures of inkblots and ask them about how they make you feel. Now, I did pre- do a PowerPoint, but I neglected to put a picture up. So I, I printed one out, and it, they show you pictures like this. And then they say, well, what do you see? And, and what does it make you feel? So, you know, just, you can shout out. Dragon, Dragon butterfly, those kind of things. And then Batman, yeah? So those kind of things. So everybody sees something different, don't they? And then so they would say, and how does, that, how does this picture make you feel? And some people might say, scared or... Sorry? Scared, yeah. So, and, so, and then these people far smarter than I, they'd show you various ink blots and they'd ask you about how they make you feel and what you see. And then they would go away and they would create a profile of you depending upon what your responses were. And everybody sees different things in the pictures and everybody responds differently to them. And it's a little bit like that when you think about forgiveness, which is what Neil and the elders here have asked me to speak on today. Forgiveness. It can be a little bit like inkblot pictures because it can be a word that means different things to different people and it can create different responses within us. You know, it it can be easy for us to forgive someone who's late for a meeting or someone who opens their car in the supermarket car park and leaves a mark on your door. 
But it can be quite another thing to forgive someone for a serious offense or to forgive someone who has profoundly and deeply and repeatedly hurt you. Forgiveness is central to our experience as Christians. It is at the heart of our relationship with God and with one another. And in fact, I would suggest that this side of heaven, we can't really have true, deep, meaningful, lasting relationships without be both being forgiven by others and extending forgiveness to others. And Jesus talked a lot about forgiveness. It's, it's, it's included in his model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, help us to forgive those. Uh, well, forgive us our debts and also help us to forgive those who are debtors to us. And yet forgiveness is really hard. You know, I forget who it was who sang the song, sorry, Elton John, wasn't it? Sorry seems to be the hardest word, and that is true. It can be unnatural for us, especially as sinners. And it can present a lot of questions to us as we try and work out the implications of all that Jesus taught as we try and follow him faithfully as his disciples. So today we've got two opportunities to tackle the topic of forgiveness from from two different angles to help us get a, a, a bigger, better, fuller picture of what the Bible teaches. Uh, now, what I'm going to say over, over two sessions is not going to be exhaustive. It, it's not going to be uh, an exhaustive treatment of the subject. There is much, 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 much more that needs to be said about forgiveness than I'm going to possibly be able to tell you and share with you in two half an hour or so sessions. And forgiveness requires nuance. It requires great sensitivity because we all come at this with our own baggage. And it requires gentleness and patience and love and grace. But my hope is by the end of the day, we'll have a better picture of what forgiveness is, what we've experienced from God, and how we need to extend it to others so that we might represent Jesus more faithfully. So this morning, we're going to tackle experiencing God's forgiveness from Psalm 130 that Neil read for us. Now, this is a psalm that the Jews would sing on the way to Jerusalem, up, going up to the temple for their feast day. So th- three times a year, they'd go up to Jerusalem, they'd sing these songs. That, they were called Songs of Ascent, which start in Psalm 120 and finish in Psalm 134. And Psalm 130 is a song of ascent. So they would sing it on the way to Jerusalem to remind themselves of the truths about who God is uh, and to try and stir anticipation and excitement and faith for gathering together with God's People, But the psalm opens in verses 1 and 2 in a strange place because the psalmist is down in the dumps, if you like. He tells us that he is in the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And that word depths is a, is a word that usually means the depths of the sea. Now in the ancient Near East, you know, the sea wasn't a place that conjured up images of surfing and sandcastles and fresh air and fun like we might think, oh, let's go to the sea, a day at the sea, at the seaside, that sounds great. Now, in, in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture in, the, in which the Jews were living at the time, the sea represented evil and chaos and danger and a place of, of storms and destruction. So, for instance, in, in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel sees a vision of the four evil monsters that are going to plague the earth, they come out of the sea. Or in Revelation 13, when John sees the beast come forth, it emerges out of the sea. 
So when we read Psalm uh, 130, verse 1, we're supposed to have a picture of the psalmist who's basically like a character in a disaster at sea movie. We've all seen those films, haven't we, I think, where there's you know, deep blue sea or something, or maybe even Jaws. There's always a scene in some of these movies where a hero and his companions are trapped in, in a sinking ship or in a cave or in a tunnel or something, and the water level is rising, and they're getting it, and it's up to their necks, and then they and it's going further, and you, know, and you think, are they going to survive this? That's what the psalmist feels like here in, at the beginning of this psalm, like he's drowning. Like he's in a dangerous place of watery chaos. He's, he's so far out, if you like, into the depths of the sea that he can't touch the bottom. That he can't see the bottom. That he's, as the waves are billowing over him, he feels like he's drowning and he shouts out to God in his distress for help. Now, first question we should ask is, why? Why is the psalmist so distressed? And what sometimes makes us cry out to God. Now, there are, aren't there many different reasons we cry out to God? Some, is, some are worldly fears. We're perhaps worried about the war in Ukraine. Or more local anxieties. Sometimes it could be phobias or physical pain or sickness or the pain of death or threats or oppositions or persecution. And those are all things that you find the psalmist cries out to God for in many different places in the scriptures. But in Psalm 130, none of those things are responsible for the distress that the psalmist is in. In fact, as you read on into verse 3, there's an agonizing rhetorical question that throws light on why the psalmist is so distressed. If you, O Lord kept a record of sin who could stand so remember the picture this is a song of ascent so the 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 jews would be singing this on the way up to jerusalem up the mountain to the temple to meet with god's people to offer their sacrifices for passover or something like that and as they are approaching the mountain as they see the temple in a distance he's beginning to What's going through his mind is, if you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, how, how can I draw near? How can I come up the temple? How can I meet with you? How can I, as a sinner, draw near to a holy God? If you, if you got out your ledger, your book, your list of, of all the things that I have done that I should never have done, and if you kept a list of all the things that I haven't done that I should have done, and if you started to tell everybody about the shameful things that I've done, all my thoughts that go through my head privately, all my actions that people see publicly, all the words that I speak, all the, all the motives and the attitudes of my heart, what hope would I of ever drawing near to you? How could I come into your presence? How could I stand before you? That's what's causing him distress in this moment. Now, perhaps he's, as, as the psalmist is walking, perhaps he's overwhelmed by just small little things that add up. And the cumulative effect of those small little things that he's done just feel like a great weight. Or perhaps he's overwhelmed by one particular thing that he has done. 
that continually torments him. We, we're not told. But he's distressed almost to the point of death. How can a holy God have anything to do with a sinful person like me? If God dealt with me according to my works, I could not stand. And that is distressing his soul. But then look at how the psalm ends in verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And the psalm ends on this kind of upbeat, joyful note. It starts way down here and ends way up here. And the next question we should ask is, why? How could a man who was feeling like he was drowning in under the weight of his own sin, like it was weighing him down like a millstone, now be saying to those around him, come on, let's hope in the Lord. Isn't God good? Why the difference? What's brought this about? Well, if you're like me, there's many different ways in which I deal with my sin. Sometimes I, I deny it. Or I excuse it, or I call it something else. Oh, no, no, it's not that. It's, you know, it's this. Or we can ignore it, we can lie about it, we can justify it, we can blame shift it onto someone else. Sometimes when we are weighed down by guilt and our experience of doing something wrong, we escape. We try and escape from our guilt. We run to the TV or to the internet or to football or to video games or to any other kind of hobbies that we might have, gardening or crocheting or whatever, to just escape thinking about it. Let's do distraction tactics. Or we can drown our guilt in alcohol or drugs, whether illegal or medicated, or chocolate. Or we can externalize our guilt and we can say, well, it's not really my fault. I'm just like this because of what she did to me or what he did to me. Or we can beat ourselves up in, a, in an attempt to try and pay for it. So we go to the gym at five every morning and we run on that treadmill. Not because we want to look like Joe Wicks, but because we're trying to pay for our sins deep down. Or we wallow in self-pity, or we try religious penance. You know, Lord, I'll just, I'll read my Bible extra long tomorrow. And all of those things we try and do to assuage our guilt. Because we have guilty consciences that condemn us, and we have the lies of Satan whispering constantly in our ears. You're not good enough, you're not good enough, you've done it again, you've lied again, you've, you've stumbled again, you've fallen again. You sinned again, you looked at that again, you said that again, you got angry again. What kind of Christian are you? Jesus didn't love you. And all of our efforts to escape, deny, excuse, ignore, cover, justify, fail to assuage our guilt. So what hope do we have? Well, verse 4, if you've got it. He says, oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, oh Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And that's a great line, isn't it? With you, there is 
forgiveness. So what the psalmist does, he doesn't go inwardly into himself and try and work out ways in which he can deal with his sin. Neither does he click on Amazon and buy the latest self-help book or go to the shop and buy oodles of dairy milk or Heineken. He doesn't get out his computer and lose himself in what he can find to look at. He goes upward for divine help. Okay, I'm drowning. I feel the weight of my sin. It's pulling me down. Only God can throw me a lifeline. And he reminds himself, with you there is forgiveness. Yes, God is a holy God who dwells on the mountain, in the temple, in the psalmist's day. He's a holy God. Who can draw near to him? But he's also, he's a forgiving God. There is a way for me to draw near. He is able to grant forgiveness to people like the psalmist. He's able to grant forgiveness to people like you and me who can, so that we might draw near to him. And did you notice? So that we can, with reverence, serve him. Or in other translations, fear him. Or in some translations, so that we might worship him. He's, he's able to grant forgiveness so that men and women can come near to him and enjoy relationship with him and communion with him. And now I just want to explore what that verse 4 really means. What's tied up in those words? With you, there is forgiveness. And I think there's three things that we can get out of that one verse. The psalmist says, with you, there is forgiveness because he knows and is telling us God's forgiveness is comprehensive. Verse 4, it says, with you, there is forgiveness. Now, That doesn't just mean forgiveness for this sin or forgiveness for that sin. In the Hebrew, it literally reads, actually, with you, the forgiveness. Like the the psalmist is defining forgiveness. There is definitive forgiveness. With God, the forgiveness exists. He has the authority and the power to pardon all sins. It's a comprehensive, without limits, forgiveness for anyone Anytime for anything that we have ever done. It's forgiveness for our many sins. It's forgiveness for our every sin. And it's forgiveness for every person who will trust in God for the forgiveness of their sins. It's a comprehensiveness. The forgiveness is with God. The forgiveness is with God. There is no quotas to forgiveness with God. It's comprehensive. So he doesn't say, well, I can forgive Neil on a Tuesday, but not on a Wednesday. Or Dan was forgiven in 2019, so there's not a lot left over for 2022. Sorry, mate. No, that's not how God operates. There is comprehensive forgiveness for everyone, anytime, for anything that we have done. So put yourself in the shoes of the psalmist. Perhaps you came this morning... And you feel weighed down just by the the back catalogue of little sins in your life. That when you add them all together, they just feel like they crush you. Or maybe you're a person who just, something has happened in your life or today or yesterday. One particular event or episode that you just cannot shake free from. 
And it could be obvious things. Perhaps you had premarital sex. Perhaps you've had an affair and you can't get out from underneath it. Perhaps you're battling lust. Perhaps it's drunkenness. Perhaps it's stealing or lying or anger or gossip. Perhaps it could be something more respectable like pride, hatred of someone, coveting, self-sufficiency or a lack of prayer. The psalmist here in verse 4 tells us, with God there is forgiveness that's comprehensive. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, wherever we find ourselves, forgiveness can be ours. God is able to rescue us from all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of the punishment that we deserve. There are no depths so deep that God cannot rescue you from. And when I say forgiveness, I'm not talking about the kind of God will just sweep it under the carpet in the hope that no one will ever talk about it again, but maybe one day we'll trip up on that lump under the carpet. No, what God promises is a forgiveness that is full and free and total and comprehensive and available today. And that's the second thing. God's forgiveness is always available. If you read verse 4 again, it says, with you there is forgiveness. The English Bible puts it in the present tense. But in the Hebrew original language, it comes with an even stronger force because there's no time markers. There's no tense. It just says, with God there is forgiveness. So forgiveness is not confined to the past. 3,000 years ago when this psalm was written. It's not just forgiveness for past sins that you've done. Neither is it like... Well, I think God will forgive, but it, we'll have to wait until that day when, you know, we stand before the throne and he, and he decides whether I can be forgiven or not. Like somehow we, we sit with our fingers crossed. No. Forgiveness is not just dished out in the past or something to wait for in the future. With God, there is forgiveness now. Past, present, and future. All of our sins can be forgiven. So no matter who we are, whatever we've done, wherever we've come from, whenever we've done it, there's forgiveness. And it's not a once in a blue moon experience. It's not a limited time offer. It's, it's not got a use by date on it. With God, there is forgiveness. It's fully, freely available now. God is as forgiving today on the 24th of April 2022 as he was on the day the psalmist sang this for the very first time. Or on the day that Jesus died on that cross. And the forgiveness that he offers to us is not a gradual process of, yeah, here's a little bit of forgiveness and then a little bit more and a little bit more. No, he promises if we come to him and we confess our sin to him and we trust in his son, we can experience forgiveness today, now. So not then or then in the past or then in the future, but now, today. Not in heaven when we see Jesus face to face, but today, now. Not when we've cleaned up our lives and tried to do better. No, we can come now and experience God's forgiveness. Not when we've somehow conquered that besetting sin or we feel closer to God or we've got our devotions you know, on track and they're a little bit more consistent. 
No, we can come now and ask God to forgive us. Oh, I, you know, maybe when the kids are older and they don't push my buttons anymore and they're out of the house and they're making their own way, maybe then God will be able to forgive me for all of the ways I failed in my parenting. No, he can forgive you now. If you've been in this church since 1965, or this is your first morning here, this is the one thing I would like you to go home with. With God there is forgiveness. You can cry out to him no matter what you've done, and you can find forgiveness in Jesus. The third thing that I'd like you to just see out of this psalm is that God's forgiveness is comprehensive, it's always available, but it's received by faith. We've already said that the psalmist is not refusing or denying his sin. He's not trying to rationalize it away like, oh, you know, well, if Neil had said that, I wouldn't have responded like this. Neither is he relativizing it away like, well, you know, Neil and Simon and Nathan, they were all doing it, so I think I could get away with it too. He's not flippant or presumptuous about God's grace. What you find is that he acknowledges he's a sinner. He admits he's a sinner and he cries out to God for mercy. That is exercising faith. That's exercising faith. Look with me at verses 5 and 6 because here we have faith on display. So having cried out to God from the depths and shouted to God, Lord, be attentive to my cries for mercy. And then he says, you know, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that I could draw near to you and worship you and serve you. And then he says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. That is an expression of faith. He's waiting. He's in that season of waiting. He's, and he's not waiting for a bus. You know, like, oh, I'm just sitting here waiting for it to come along and collect me, and then off we go. No, he, the waiting is more like, um, if you're a sports fan, uh, like rug, when you watch the Six Nations in the rugby, you see them set in a scrum, and then the scrum half has got the ball, and all of the, the, the backs, those big, hefty blokes on the back line, are just on their tiptoes waiting for the ball to come to them so that they can catch it and plow through and score a try. That's the kind of waiting. On their tiptoes, ready. Is it coming? When's it going to Okay, are we ready? Okay, good. Let's go. Let's go. Boom. Yeah, try. England win. Or not. <laughs> or if you're not a sports fan and you love the great British break-off, you know, you see, you see these people and they make their cakes and then they bung them in the oven and then they close the door and they sit and they look. And then, they, and then their buzzer goes, and they're like, oh, 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 and they pull it out, and they're like, I, oh, finally I can impress Paul and Prue with my bake. That's the kind of waiting. Active, exercising faith. Lord, I, 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 want, I need you. I want you. I, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I'm a sinner, and you're a holy God, but with you there's forgiveness, and, and I'm 
I'm leaning in, Lord. Help me to trust you. And his expression, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. And then he repeats it, I wait for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. It's an expression of faith. But look at what he's putting his faith in. He says, I put my, in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. In his word, in, in the promises of God. So as he's headed up to Jerusalem, as he's headed to the temple singing this song, and he's waiting and he's hoping on the promises of God in his word. And perhaps he's recalling some, some Old Testament passages. Perhaps he's recalling where God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, where, where God says, you know, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a merciful God, Gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Perhaps that's in his mind. Oh, he's a gracious God. Steadfast love is with him. He forgives iniquity and transgressions. I can draw near. Or perhaps it's somewhere like Leviticus chapter 4, which is a, a, a you don't have to turn there. Uh, it's, a, it's a really difficult, lengthy chapter on uh, how to bring sacrifices to God. And it tells you what to do with the blood and what to do with the fat and what to do with the animal and what to do with the carcass and everything else. And it describes sin offerings and sacrifices and, and uh, it's a messy chapter. But all the way through Leviticus chapter 4, you find as, as the... As Moses tells them what to do with the blood or the fat or the flesh, there's this refrain that you find four times in, in Leviticus chapter 4. And he will be forgiven. And he will be forgiven. So as you bring the blood, you will be forgiven. As you bring the offering, you will be forgiven. As you bring the sacrifice, you will be forgiven. Maybe that's what he's hoping in. But we know, don't we, that the sacrifices that were offered at the temple in Jerusalem during the psalmist's day that reminded and taught the Israelites that you could only approach God through the shedding of blood and through the death and sacrifice of another. We know that while they were useful to the Israelites, while they did function for the Israelites, while they mediated God's forgiveness to God's people, they were insufficient. And that was obvious because they had to be repeated again and again and again, day after day, week after week, year after year. They were good, but they weren't enough. They couldn't bridge completely the, the gap between sinful people and a holy God, but that was God's plan because in God's plan, he decided, I'm going to give you something that's a picture that shows you, that signposts you towards someone and something that will ultimately bring forgiveness. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we find the ultimate expression of the promises of God. So the, the Old Testament saints, they clung to the promises of God. They, they trusted in his word and all that God was going to do. They had hope. 
that forgiveness could really be theirs through the shedding of blood, but we stand here this morning with an even more sure and certain hope-imparting word. Jesus. Hebrews 9. The writer to Hebrews 11 to 15 says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that, that, that are now already here, he went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. And he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse us or cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And then verse 15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And then down into verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. For just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And then he will appear a second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See the crossover in the language there. Psalm 130 and Hebrews 9. Those who wait on him. Those who exercise faith in Christ. Can have all of their sins forgiven. And as verse 12 of Hebrews 9 says. Enter into an eternal redemption. We haven't even got to the climax of the psalm yet. For in verses 7 and 8. And I'll just close with this. We reach the climax of the psalm, where the psalmist, having reminded himself of his sin and his debt before God, and having turned upward and outward to see God and his forgiveness, and having confessed his need of Christ and, or his need of God and his salvation, and having declared his hope and his confidence and his faith in God, he then turns to the people around him and he says, come on, people of God, come on, Israel, come on, Headley Park Church. Join me, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption, for he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And the climax of the psalm, he wants us to see the company that God keeps. He's already told us that with God there's forgiveness, but now he tells us with God there is unfailing love, and with God there is full redemption, or in... in a translation I prefer, a plentiful redemption. Not just forgiveness, not just absolution of sins, but redemption, a freedom, a deliverance, a salvation, a rescue that you do not deserve and cannot earn from all your sins and for all who call on Christ. And it's a 
plentiful, a full redemption. It's not something where you just get in by the skin of your teeth or you get into heaven with your backside on fire. It's a plentiful redemption. There's plenty to go around. There's plenty to spare. It's full. And I think why I say I prefer plentiful redemption is because I think he's trying to contrast the depths of the sea where he felt like he was drowning and he couldn't touch the bottom and he couldn't see the bottom. But now there's plentiful redemption where he's almost drowning in that now. Where you can't see the bottom of it. You can't touch the bottom of God's plentiful redemption. So let me just close with one final question. Have you cried out for this mercy for forgiveness yourself? Because if you haven't, today is the day where God invites you to come with all of your sin, with all of your guilt, with all that plagues you. And you could be free from it by coming to Jesus. And if you are a Christian and you have already done that, that's not just something that you do at one point in your life. That's something that we should do every single day. Running to the promises of God, running to his word, running to his living word, Jesus Christ. And what we will find is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the hope that we have with you. If you kept a record of sins, it would be true. Who could stand? Not one of us. But with you, there is comprehensive, full, and free forgiveness that is completely available to us for for everyone in this room no matter what we've done no matter what we continue to do no matter who we are or where we're from or or however we approach this morning however we walked in there is forgiveness with you there's plentiful redemption for you yourself in Christ have redeemed us from all of our sins